call is now being recorded. Hello, this is Mark Rubenstein, and you're on Writer to Writer, and today we're going to have a conversation with David Mamet. David Mamet is one of the most acclaimed and eclectic writers of our time. His credits are virtually too numerous to list. As a playwright, he's won a Pulitzer Prize and received Tony nominations for Glengarry Glen Ross and Speed the Plow. Some of his other plays have included The Duck Variations, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, and American Buffalo. He's written and directed feature films such as House of Games, Things Change, Homicide, Oleana, The Spanish Prisoner, The Winslow Boy, State and Maine, Spartan, Red Belt, Homicide, and recently the HBO film Phil Spector. He's also written screenplays for The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, The Verdict, Wag the Dog, The Edge, Ronin, and Hannibal. In addition, he's written poetry, a series of short plays, essays, and three novels. He's also written nonfiction and written for television and radio and is the creator, producer, and frequent writer for the television series The Unit. He's written episodes for the TV series The Shield. He's a blogger for the Huffington Post and an essayist. His latest written work, about which we're going to talk a little bit later, is called Three War Stories, which are three novellas to be released on November 11th. Welcome, and it's a pleasure and, above all, a privilege to have you, David Mamet, to talk with. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Well, the uh, first question, uh, I, I know you've been asked this so many times. Your dialogue has been called street smart, uh, street smart, edgy, and many other things. It's even been called mammoth speak. Can you share with us how it comes to you? Yeah, you know what occurs to me? There's an old, there's an old joke. Uh, I think it's even an old Jewish, Jewish joke. It's about a guy... He leaves home on a business trip. He leaves his wife there, and his business trip. He gets to the airport. His business trip's been canceled, so he goes back home, and he finds his partner in bed with his wife, and he says, "Sam, I have to, but you." <laughs> so I mean, I mean, that's not about my marriage. I'm, I'm married to a goddess, and thank thank the Lord every day for 25 years. But the idea is, I have to. You know, what I mean, I, I just don't know any better. That's 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 just how I write. I have no idea why or how I'm I'm a bit of a freak, and that's that's just it. So it just it just comes out of you. In... Hello, hope you've gone away. Hey, hello, yeah, we uh, had a an interruption there. Uh, it, does it just come out of you, or do you find that you have to recraft it at times, rewrite it? Well, well, both. You know, you just you do it you do it till it's done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the risk of being a little redundant, uh, can you talk about the role of language uh, in your plays and films? I mean, uh, of course, plays are, are so much dialogue, uh, um, and of course, they can uh, films as well, and uh, even in novels. But language seems to be something that's so important uh, in, in understanding and appreciating David Mamet. Well, oh, thank you. I you know, a play is basically a, a very long, uh, extremely formalistic poem, and it, you can write it without the poetry. But, and in fact, you can write it without the poetry, and you can come up with a pretty good play, as we know because we see plays in translation. You know, not very few people speak 
Swedish or Danish or whatever the hell those Ibsen and them guys spoke, or Russian, yet we understand uh, Miss Julie and uh, When We Did Awaken and uh, uh, Chekhov in translation. And certainly it's, it doesn't bear the, it's not the same as the poetry of the original languages. So we follow them because of the plot and we follow the play of ideas. On the other hand, if you can put, you can follow a play because of the plot and also write it in what's uh, essentially poetry, it's going to stick in your mind. And the the test of that is people put some Hello? Shakespeare for for all of their lives. Hello. Hello. Yeah, gee, we've got a terrible connection here. You said something about Shakespeare. Yeah, I said people remember Shakespeare all of their lives, and they can't remember they can't remember the plot of Two Gentlemen of, the, of Verona, but they might remember a line because the rhythm of it, uh, as you know, you you a psychiatrist, right? Yes. Okay, so as Freud said, you know, it's polymorphous perversity. It strikes something in us that we can't. It's 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 a priori we can't get beyond the the, the fact that there's just something in music that that gets to us, and poetry is is the is the music of speech. And your your dialogue uh, has, I think, been considered uh, a form of almost street poetry by many. Well, I don't know. Maybe so. Um, I was thinking about. Um, I wrote in one of my essays about rap music, which is the, you know, the the operative poetry of our time, and I said it has a lot of um, precursors. If you look at um, uh, J. Alfred Prufrock by our friend uh, Mr. Elliot, it's basically a rap song. You know, to uh, put on a rap scowl and, and do it, and and you'll see. Mm-hmm. The the speaking of street poetry, I, I'm reading this great book by George MacDonald Fraser, who was uh, just died rest in peace. He was a, a wonderful war writer. He wrote the, the Flashman series of, of about this imaginary character in in Victorian times, a, a general, and he wrote a, a marvelous war memoir about his war in Burma called Quartered Safe Out Here. He was also a historian, and he wrote about the borderers, the Scottish border, and where he came from, where, whence he came. And he quotes a lot of the old border ballads that were simply folk music. And he makes the point, and it's so clear, that this was Walter Scott. He was just, A, influenced by, and uh, B, immersed in, and regurgitating the border ballads, which were which were the folk music of the border. And also, <clears throat> if you read the border ballads and you read Kipling, it's the same thing. You see, we're, we're Kipling on all of his ideas from. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. well, you know, if it's not the music of the people, what is it? Is it some of it the music of your own people that is the primary culture of David Mamet's early family? I, I once read uh, that you had commented about developing at least some of your dialogue or your penchant for it by talking about your early family discussions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, my family are, are, are Jews. Uh, we're kind of newcomers. We've only been Jews for about 7,000 years. But uh, the, the, the Jewish family, and the Jew, just like the larger Jewish community, uh, operates through uh, through disputation because that's that's our our great our great talent. You know, that's what the Talmud is, and that's what the, the Jewish legal system is. Uh, you take two completely opposing views and try to find some some middle ground that will allow you to get through the dessert. And was there a great deal of disputation in, in your family, uh, uh, as they used to say, shouting at the top of the lungs? No, I think that's the Italians. We just, we just, Jews just bear grudges for the 
end of time. But I remember my, my father very, very, very much. He was very fond of the phrase, so shut up and sit down. So, so there you have it. Okay. Well, you, you haven't shut up, thank God. Okay. But I did go into poetry because that's where the money is. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a question that you could probably talk forever about. Uh, can you compare uh, writing a stage play with a screenplay as opposed to a novel? Yeah, writing a stage play and writing a screenplay have very, very, very little to do with each other. Mm -hmm. Stage plays just dialogue, and you have to, one has to be able to communicate the play through disputation. It's basically a form of, of uber schizophrenia because one splits oneself into two um, minds, one being the protagonist, one being the, the antagonist. The one also splits oneself into another two minds, one being the mind of the, the writer, the other being the mind of the audience. How to, how to lure the audience on so that they use their own power of reason in trying to jump ahead of the play and determine what happens next to their own destruction. So that at the end of the play, as Aristotle said, they're surprised, and mm -hmm. yet they're um, they're chastened because they say, "I knew it all along." <clears throat> so it might bearing writing a play is it might be compared to a uh, to the uh, to the, the workings of a, a psychopath, who are of course the most charming people in the world and lure you step by step to your own your own destruction. Mm -hmm. And and writing a novel differs in in what way? Well, writing a novel, writing a novel, one puts one. It's incredibly freeing. One puts oneself in the and one's narrator hat, you know, and one can go off in any any direction and uh, go to the past or the future or go uh, go uh, laterally or include, uh, God forbid, one's own uh, one's own beliefs. Am I hearing you correctly, though, David, that uh, essentially at the heart of it all is conflict? Well, that's the, the, yes, of course it's conflict. That's what a play is about. That's why it has the capacity to cleanse, because we see a, a, a we, we get involved in a situation. Here's what happens in a play. We get involved in a situation which has been unbalanced. If something has not been unbalanced, there's no reason to have a play. The question is, why now? If Hamlet comes home from school and his, his dad's not dead, his dad said, have, have a good time at school, and Hamlet sulks in the corner, you know, and lights up a joint, and uh, two weeks later he goes back to school. But because something's been unbalanced, something must be returned to order. So the, 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 the task of the play is, that, is to return to order that which has been unbalanced. So, of course, there are going to be conflicts. And in Hamlet, uh, brilliantly, they happen largely inside the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, hello? Yep, I'm, I'm yep. here. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, your plays, your films, often deal with duplicity, theft, with manipulation, and even con games in films like uh, House of Games and Heist, or in a play like Glengarry Glen Ross. Does this reflect your view about America and our times? Well, it's a, it's it's a view of every time. Mm -hmm. I, you, you, I, I've written a, a, an unfortunately large number of plays. I think they're all pretty damn good, but it's the, the number of them is daunting. And some of them deal with the, the conflicts of the business world, and some of them deal with different conflicts, like conflicts between people in the mar 
marriage or in a, in a, in a gay relationship or conflicts in growing up. So that um, some of the, I think that the, perhaps you're talking about the best, the best, the better known plays. Yes, the better has, known there has ones. To be, yes. There has to be some conflict, and if you keep writing the same play, you know, I want you to go home. But is there something about uh, the con, uh, the con game, uh, that really attracts you? Yeah, sure. That's one of the things that attracts me is how how because the con game, like the play is a method of luring the mind on to its own destruction. Mm-hmm. Say, step A is correct, step B is correct, step C makes a lot of sense, and I wake up and I've just lost all my money, and I, I gave all my money to a total stranger. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in, a, in a play or a movie, which is a different kind of play, you lead the audience on it. As my great friend Ricky Jay, the great magician, said, at yes. some point you just got to ask for the money. You've you got to lure them on to the point where that you, you ask them to make, uh, unconsciously, uh, a leap of faith, and now they're involved in something which, they're about, which is about to be revealed to be completely absurd. So that to some extent, uh, if not a, an enormous extent, uh, all of this and perhaps all of art is uh, a manipulation. Is a what? A manipulation. Maybe so. I don't know. I think it's the it's well. You could well to the extent you could say magic is a manipulation. It's a manipulation mm-hmm. for which one signs on. One, mm-hmm. one, one does, you know, the healthy person does not go to a magic show to say I'm going to find out where that duck actually came from. Out of this puck, right? They go, they go, they go in order to be fooled. Or as many sure. people said they suspend their disbelief. The, 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 the but the the conclusion of that phrase is, or, or a different rendering of the phrase would be they trade their power to disbelieve for their power to be amused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you were once asked what you would have done if you hadn't become a writer. And uh, I may be paraphrasing you, and I hope I'm accurate, but you said you'd probably have become a criminal. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it's a very dramatic thing to say, but as my, you know, my mother used to say when I was a kid, and my wife says, "Now, why must you always dramatize everything?" Well, that's my nature to dramatize. But I was, I was at a, uh, my good friend Patty Lupone was singing a concert out here, and I was sitting down, and this guy came in, and he was about my age, you know, he's maybe his mid sixties, and he was morbidly obese and obviously very, very unhappy and badly dressed. And he had a uh, carrier case for a dog. I assume it was a dog. It was a big case. And obviously he had a companion animal. And I looked at that guy, and he was pathetic. And I thought, because there was something about him that was, one could see in him he could have made a different choice, that part of this was choices that he made throughout his life, that perhaps he found life daunting. But he did have a choice. But I'm looking at that guy and thinking, my God, that's that's me. That's that's exactly how I feel. That's how he always knew I was going to end up, like that guy. But your choice was, of course, to become a writer, uh, a poet, a, a filmmaker, a director, and not a criminal. Although you have written extensively about criminals. <laughs> well, so did Brandeis, but you know, he didn't become a criminal. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> You once said, uh, David, quote, there's no such thing as talent. You just have to work hard enough, unquote. Yeah. What did you mean by that? 
Well, I meant by that, it's not true, by the way. It's what I thought. No, of course not. David Mamet has... David Mamet has some talent. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody. You know, you you can work forever. You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to throw the the fastball like like Sandy Koufax. Right. And uh, you know, Sandy Koufax spent a lot of his uh, time explaining the uh, ergonomics of the fastball, and it made perfect sense to him because he could throw the fastball. Mm-hmm. You know, but but it didn't make any sense to anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I I was doing a movie with Helen Mirren. And we were talking one day on the set, and she said, "Oh, David, you know, you, you, when you when you direct, you kind of act, which is what a director does. He kind of acts out mm-hmm. the uh, the piece for his for his actors." She said, "Oh, you must have been an actor." I said, "Yeah, I was a kid actor." So she said, "Well, how were you?" I said, "I was terrible." So she said, "But it's so easy," and I said, "Yeah, Helen, for you, it's easy." So if you got Hello? the talent, some some things are easier. Yes. And the, the, the somebody said, and I think it was uh, Eric Hopper, he said that the talent, the talentless, think everything happens without effort. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you must make, uh, you do make an effort at what you do, uh, but you do have that inborn talent. Yeah. Yeah, thank God, you know, I thank God every day, you know, I I, I used to lay sod for a living, you know, wash dishes, did all that stuff, I, I didn't particularly care for it, so when I found that I had a gift for writing, I I would have had to be a, a, a much more uh, uh, for individual than I am, not to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this obvious gift and, and, and work hard, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to end like that guy. And maybe it goes back to the question about recrafting dialogue, rewriting. Um, There are people who say writing is really rewriting. Uh, Does that characterize a good deal of your writing, or does it just flow and require relatively minor revision? Depends. I mean, there's some Mm -hmm. things I work on forever, literally for years and years and years. And there's some things I work on for not ever, but you know what difference does it make? It's just I really I feel that's... um, I'm doing a movie, uh, or oh, actually, the, the previous movie I did a couple of movies ago, and it, it occurred to me that I was talking to some producer, and he was telling me how hard it was to get the money. And I thought, but didn't say, I don't care how hard it was to get the money. We have a deal. I don't, you know, I don't tell you how hard it is to write, write, write the silly movie. Don't tell me how hard it is to get the money. Or, or, or in the words of uh, Milton Friedman, the geniuses of uh, commerce is we we reduce everything to price. That that's all the information you, you need to know. Mm-hmm. Is if you, looking back on what is now an enormous body of work, and this may be almost an impossible question to answer. Would you say there's uh, any overriding theme to your plays and films? I hope not. No. Okay. <laughs> Are, are there any few themes or dramatic uh, infrastructural kinds of, of uh, leitmotifs running through what you've written? No, I don't think so. Again, I hope not. You know, I, 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 I go to work. One of the reasons I go to work is to amuse myself. You know, if I can't amuse myself, then, then uh, it's, it's very, very hard to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they. So. Uh, as somebody said, you know, steal from any, anybody but yourself. 
that's one reason I liked uh, uh, writing. Um, I wrote a lot of nonfiction books, and also I wrote about four or five novels. One reason I like writing them is you can just go to go in and knock yourself out having a marvelous time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion about uh, any effects that Hollywood uh, and the mass media have had on theater today? Well, hell, I don't know. I mean, things change. In show business in my lifetime, a television started uh, um, its uh, 60-year war with the movies and seems to have wiped the movies out. And the movies are now dying in the face of um, uh, the Internet. And mm-hmm. uh, everything, you know, and through it all, the theater uh, exists in um, in in uh, it's and is driven to the wall now and again. When I was a kid, there was no um, there was the little theater movement. You know, there were the Broadway stage plays which came to Chicago, and then mm-hmm. there was the the, the 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 culture enclave, which at the time in Chicago was the Goodman Theater in, in Ravinia, and then there was amateur theater. And then, within my lifetime, sprang out of the little theater movement. These regional theaters, you know, the Zelda Fitzhandler in Dallas and uh, Greg Mosher in Chicago and uh, Bob Brewstein at Yale, that that spawned um, a, a resurgence of the American theaters. So Joe Pappen in, in the 70s is doing everybody in, in this magnificent cultural uh, castle in New York at the, at the public. And mm-hmm. um, now it, maybe it's time for theater to go back to the wall a little bit. So do you see the Internet and mass media today, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the accessibility of computers and CDs and and, uh, these kinds of things, do you think they will uh, make stage plays less and less relevant over time? Well, the stage plays are are, are always going to be relevant in Mm -hmm. one way or another, just as rap music. has reinvented the idea of poetry. They said, wait a second, the poetry is not that stuff you find in New York, and it's garbage. The poetry is the poetry of the street. Mm-hmm. It always has been. Somebody mm-hmm. had something very, very important to say and set it in the rhythm of uh, his or her own uh, cultural milieu. So similarly, the stand-up co- comedy that w- was born in the, in, in the Forest Belt in the 40s and the 50s, and I grew up in an Second City in Chicago in the 60s spawned all of this improvisational theater all around that's become a staple of, of, of world entertainment. Mm-hmm. So that one's more likely to you know to, to, to hear the truth and listening to Eddie Izzard or Chris Rock than going to see some uh, production of The House of Bernardo Alba at the Yahavitzville uh, uh, Players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you feel uh, uh, this may be a bit of a strange question? Do, do you feel that a novel or play should be accessible to a wide audience, or or does it matter? You know, I, I hear that question a lot of you. I don't know what a wide audience is. I've never, I've never ever met a stupid audience ever. And mm-hmm. this is, I've been making my living doing this, uh, doing the same, you know, writing gags for for close to 50 years. I've never met a stupid audience, and I've never read a good book that's that's inaccessible. I don't know what inaccessible means. I think it's kind of a, you know, kind of a statist idea that we're going to posit people dumber than ourselves and, mm-hmm. and write for them. But I tell you, I read a lot of, quote, children's literature because I've got my last uh, teenager in the house, and 
that, that kind of makes me want to throw up. The, the idea of being the kids are stupid, that we have to somehow write down to them. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, it's a, it's a great receptacle for, for second-rate writers. Mm-hmm. Which writers do you enjoy reading most? Well, I figured out a little while ago that my test was not if somebody can write a book, because anybody can write a book, but if they can write a sentence. So I this, had these three war stories. was very much an... Um, an homage to Patrick O'Brien, who just died about 10 years ago at the age of 91, and wrote some of the greatest adventure stories in the English language of the mm-hmm. Aubrey and Maturin uh, sea novels. And um, I enjoy reading someone who can who can really write. And uh, there are there are a few today. There are, there, are, there aren't many, but there are a few. But if one goes back to the history of English literature, there, there's a whole bunch. Which ones, uh, in particular, uh, uh, really work for you that you you really enjoy, either past or or present writers? Well, you know, I love I adore Hemingway and I adore Kipling and Patrick O'Brien. Uh, Trollope, I love all the Trollope books, you know, and, and uh, uh, George Eliot and uh, Jane Austen and mm-hmm. um, you know all, all the great nineteenth and Tolstoy, all the great nineteenth century uh, um, uh, novelists. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk just a little bit about your latest uh, written work, Three War Stories. Um, these are three novellas that deal with uh, one with the 19th century war, uh, one with the American Indian Wars, and uh, the last story uh, deals with uh, maybe a month or two just prior to the Israeli War of Independence. What made you choose to write three war stories? Well, I wrote. <laughs> I'm going to have to revert to a kindergarten. I wrote one, and then I wrote another, and then I wrote another, and it turned out to be three of them. So the question, you know, is is I, I write for enjoyment, and I I also write. I do it for a living. So I wrote one novella. So well, that's kind of cute. And then I wrote another one. I said, well, heck, I guess if you write a third, you might have a book. So that it just kind uh-huh. of happened like that. So, so there was no no theme or or uh, particular statement you were trying to make by by uh, using three uh, stories about war. No, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not my job to make a statement. I know there are writers mm-hmm. and, and pretty good writers who who write to make a statement, but uh, that seems to me, uh, you know, as uh, Belasco says, you know, if you want to send a message, send it, send a telegram. I don't I don't know anything more than anyone else about the world. I just happen to be a mm-hmm. writer. Let me, with your permission, I'd like to read the first paragraph of Red Wing, which is the first of the three novellas in the three war stories. I must say, David, it's quite beautiful, and it reads as uh, follows Advanced age, accompanied by reasonable health, is generally accounted a blessing. I do not know that it is so. And I suspect that such proclamation is made solely by those ignorant of the actual nature of age. For though age awards to most both increased time and ability for reflection, such leisure allows or suggests the question, to what end? Unquote. Can you talk a little bit about that opening paragraph? That's good. That's really good. I like that. That's good I, writing. I, yeah, I got to tell you, you, have, you caught me right at first paragraph. 
sucked me right in. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, thank you. So so the question, as I said earlier, is not one can one write a book, but can one write a sentence? Uh huh. And uh, so that's that. That was my task in uh, in in writing, especially writing that novel, which is an an, an homage to the uh, to the uh, really to the Georgian. That that beautiful beautiful language of of, of of that period. Yes, it 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 had a distinctly formalistic, almost if you will, British kind of quality. The 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 writing uh, of Red Wing did at least that's the way it impressed me. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, is that what you you had intended that? Well, yeah. You know, there's a tradition of uh, it's a sea novel, more or less, mm-hmm. and. Um, there's a tradition that goes back to uh, Frederick Marriott, who was a, a, a captain in uh, Nelson's Navy and um, served with Nelson. And he started writing novels, I think, in the 1820s, and they became vastly uh, popular. He became a, uh, a, a, a cultural icon, Marriott, uh, Mr. Midshipman Easy, and Newton Foster of the, uh, the Merchant Service, writing sea novels. And... They're, they're, they're wonderful. Later on, in the 1930s or 40s, a fellow called um, Cecil Smith, who wrote under the name of C.S. Forster, took many of the, uh, the the ideas and some of the actual events involved in the Napoleonic Navy and wrote a series of novels about a, a fictional character called Horatio Hornblower. And I mm-hmm. think there are 11 of those novels. And then, in the... I guess in the 60s or 70s, a fellow called Patrick O'Brien, whose real name was Richard mm-hmm. Ross, and I think his real, real name was Richard Rosovsky. It's fairly clear he was, a, he was Jewish. Started writing, rewriting the, the, the Forrester novels, which were an attempt to codify the the Marriott novels, in a series called the O'Brien Maturin books, which are the greatest. No one has ever written English better than these books, and, there, and there's 22 of them. And one reads them. I mean, I've, I've reread them so many times I have to stop for a few years because mm-hmm. um, my, my mind remembers them too well. There's some of the, 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 it's a magnificent achievement that this guy came out of nowhere and took, which was like, it's like Mozart rewriting Salieri. Now, you can go back and you read the Forrester books. Yeah, they aren't bad, but the Aubrey Maturin books by Patrick O'Brien are sheer genius. I mean, you write a sentence that will that, that will knock you on your, on your ass. Mm-hmm. And your first opening paragraph of Red Wing, uh, was there, in a way, you know, uh, I'm trying not to be a shrink here, but uh, were you reflecting in some way on advancing age uh, personally? Well, sure. I mean, that's what one yeah. does with advancing age is reflect on advancing age continuum, mm-hmm. I, I think. Unless I'm missing something. No, no, you're not, you're not missing a thing. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that something that preoccupies you, and do you feel it will start really emerging more and more in your work? I don't know, because you know, you got two other novellas in there. One's about fighting the Indians on the plains, mm-hmm. and the other's about the, the Israeli War of Independence. And, mm-hmm. and certainly, I don't know about the second, but certainly the, the third one is it's not a reflection on on, uh, on age, but it is, I hope, a ripping yarn. 
Yes, yes, for sure. Uh, one thing about uh, uh, all the novellas, uh, particularly the first one and uh, the the third one, uh, in Red Wing, I, I said, my God, was David Mamet uh, in the Navy, or you know, how much does he know about ships and 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 so forth? And in the third one. Uh, uh, how much does David Mamet know about airplanes? Uh, did you do an enormous amount of research for these, or, or have you mastered? Uh, have you become a pilot? Well, as far as the first one about ships, I did an enormous amount of reading just out of you know mm-hmm. I read all these novels I mentioned, and then mm-hmm. there were not there were magnificent body, uh, bodies of, uh, of work of um, uh, biographies of Lord Cochrane and of Lord Pellew and of, uh, of Nelson. And um, that was enough for that. Also, I happened to have been in the merchant service one summer. Uh, so I, I was actually an ordinary seaman uh, for for a summer when I was a kid and tried to get out later on out of New York with mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, NMU and never, never got out of New York. And uh, I am a pilot, and so I do not. You are a pilot. I, I, I thought so. Uh, the, the descriptions of the plane and the workings of the plane and uh, the use of the, the levers and the sticks, it, very, very authentic, and, and uh, at least to me a non-pilot, and uh, I, that was my assumption. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, strange question. If you could have dinner with any five of people, either writers or other figures from history, either dead or alive, who would those people be? I, I, I think I would choose my family. I don't like, you know, writers don't like talking to Jeremy because we don't like talking to anybody. I mean, that's why we write, for God's sakes. We uh-huh. for <laughs> well, will you indulge me? And, and family aside, I was talking with David Morell uh, the other day, and, and he, he said the same thing, uh, uh, his son and his granddaughter. Um, but aside from family, if you could have your choice and you were forced into a situation of having dinner with any five figures from history, writers or not, who might they be? Well, here's the thing. You know, if I give a give a give a talk or a lecture or class or something like that, people want to speak with me afterward. I, I don't blame them because when I hear a talk or a lecture that I've enjoyed, I want to speak to the person afterward too. But there's no, one has nothing to say to the audience. And the audience has nothing to say uh, uh, to you. It's just that the way it is. What it, it's it, it's the expression of an uh, of an otherwise unconnectable longing to get closer to something which is provocative or mysterious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for the for me to talk to the audience, it's just like the audience wants to know how the magician does the trick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The magician can't tell them because that's that's his burden. Mm-hmm. Right? If he tells them, he just ruined the trick. Mm-hmm. So, so he has he has to be able to resist the urge to confess, uh-huh. uh, which I guess is what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not doing very well today. No, no, you're you're you're, you're <laughs> true. Do you resist the the? Uh, I I know you you talk before audiences and workshops, so in, in a way you do, you do impart to them some of your knowledge and wisdom. Actually, not what I'm really doing. I figured out I was just standing up and showing off. Because uh-huh. the things that I that I would that like to tell them are like the things one would like to tell one's children. They they are they aren't. Their mind is not sufficiently developed, nor is their their experience sufficiently great to understand. And they mm-hmm. may understand as a memory later. Oh my God! Now I see what my dad said. But yes, the, the, there's an unbridgeable gap. 
I know there are some writers who who say that uh, the art speaks for itself. I have nothing more to say. It's far more interesting to to read my book or look at my my work than it is to speak to me. Well, of course, of yeah. course, because you know one is not Bo Brummel, you know, the, a society wit. And mm-hmm. so, if someone's sitting morose in a corner at a raucous dinner party, it's probably a writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another very strange question, uh, if you can even answer it. Uh, you're an artist, and as an artist, living in what could be considered an absurd world, how do you see it, and how do you respond to it? Well, I, uh, it's, of course, it's absurd. You know, it's, uh, existence is com- is. Uh, Absurd and or one can say uh, I'm going to try to find some meaning in it. So I, t- I try to find some meaning in it by doing my job. Mm-hmm. I mean, one's you know as the Christians say, my father's house has many mansions. You're never going to get to the you're never going to get to the middle of the artichoke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your your meaning you find your meaning uh, in the absurdity of of this world and this life in in your work and I assume also in your family. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm also a big fan of the Bible. It seems to uh, mm-hmm. be addressing a lot of uh, most of our uh, uh, otherwise unaddressable human questions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it is poetry. Yeah, but there aren't enough pictures. <laughs> right. Okay. What's next for David Mamet? You, you are such an eclectic uh, artist. Uh, what's coming next? Well, let me see. I'm preparing a movie. I'm going to shoot this thriller uh, that I wrote and I'm going to direct uh, with Kate Blanchett. And um, then I'm doing a new, I hope to do a new play uh, in New York next uh, fall with uh, with Al Pacino. So those are the two main things on my uh, on my plate at the time. Speaking of Kate Blanchett and Al Pacino, um, if you can answer this, uh, are there any particular actors uh, who you've found most interesting to work with? Well, I find all actors interesting to work with. I mm-hmm. mean, that's 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 the job of the director is to work mm-hmm. is to work with actors because uh, you know the because um, it's a question of semantics. How does one speak to them in a way that they can understand, which mm-hmm. is going to um, help help them play the the part mm-hmm. without uh, with, without hindering them. Mm-hmm. Now, how can one in effect motivate them? Not not motivate them to act because of course they want to act, but mm-hmm. motivate them down the, so that we're all going down the same road. The answer is: with the better the actor is, the, the least one has to say. And with the geniuses, one doesn't say much of anything. Mm-hmm. Have there been times when you've? Uh, dealt with actors in one venue or another who who just are not getting it right in terms of what you've written or what you've meant to convey in your dialogue? Well, that's really not their job. I mean, one hires them not because they can get it right, but because they can act. The Mm -hmm. the subsequent question, can they act this part, Mm -hmm. is, is up to the director. It's, up mm-hmm. to, it's like it's like saying, you know, to a doctor, Jesus Christ, don't you get uh, I forget upset because some of the people you see are all actually sick. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. that that's that's why they're there is because they're sick. So the actor wants to to know those things which are going to help him um, be good in the part and help him understand the part. And so it's the director's job to communicate it. 
So uh, ha have you had the experience of, of uh, communicating that which you, you really know needs to come through in the actor and where it just hasn't really worked and you've had to cast about for someone else? No, but once in a while no. one does have to cut around. You know? mm -hmm. And the other mm -hmm. thing is that it's a great exercise of reality because when you're directing a movie, the clock's ticking. And if something is just not working, one can cut around it or one can say, well, that's, you know what, maybe maybe the actor's got a better idea. Maybe this, mm -hmm. for example, I think you'll find this interesting. If an actor keeps blowing a line, it's because the line's no good. Mm -hmm. Have actors, or has any actor ever convinced you that a line is, quote-unquote, no good or, or you've changed a few lines because of an actor's advice? Sure. I mean, uh -huh. sure. I mean the better actor, the better an actor is, the, the more he or she has a... Un, uh, understands uh, intellectually or not the text, and, and uh, many times the actors say to me, like, "You know, do, we, do is this right, or do do we really need to say this, or or didn't I see say this previously?" Mm -hmm. and, and they're 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 right more often than than they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I've run out of questions. Is there anything else you'd you'd like to say? Um. No, I hope people read this, these novels. I really got a kick out of writing them, and especially the one about the Israeli War of Independence, because so little has been written about that. And mm -hmm. I've, I've been very, very fortunate in that I know a lot of the people um, who, who fought in that war are still around and were the founders of the Jewish state. And mm -hmm. sitting with them and listening to them is uh, it's like sitting with George Washington, and it's, it's been a, it was a I, I will not throw in a spoiler, David, but I will say that that third story ends on a chilling note. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, speaking of, of war stories, I just read a wonderful book called, it's a bad title, I think it's called Wings of e Eagles or something like that. Wings of? Wings of Eagles. It was written by a guy who um, flew an, an, an vast amount of combat in World War One. He's a British guy, Yates, whose name Y E A T E S. And he characterizes this grueling you know, six, seven hours a day of combat for years and all of his friends die and he's in and out of the hospital and eventually he goes back to England and he's invalided out finally. And he says he he was in the carriage going through the magnificent green of his native land, and peace was all around him. And uh, the, the reason that England has been so storied and kept pristine for thousands of years became clear. It was in the very rocks in the air. So he did not care. Hmm. Well, it That's has one been a... Great, one of the great chilling endings of all time. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, the the ending of your last novella in three war stories is chilling uh, um, and yet at the same time uplifting so uh, oh, thank you uh, I, I will say that and I did read all three of them and um, I can't decide which one was my favorite but although I oh, do good. think the, lang the language in the first one was just absolutely beautiful oh, thank you very much thank okay we have been talking with David Mamet, and it's uh, been a pleasure. And thank you so much for, for talking with us today on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Mark. Okay.